Hello and welcome back to season two of the Climate Alarm Clock. I'm Dara Wynn and we're delighted to be back bringing you a regular mix of climate news, features and interviews. We've a few changes to let you know about for this season, but before we get into them, one thing that hasn't changed is that I am joined in the newsroom by Anna Pringle. Anna, welcome back. How are you doing? I'm good, Dara. Thank you. Great to be back and looking forward to season two. Yeah, a lot has changed in the world since we finished up. It's got wilder and stranger and more scary, probably, I think. And we'll be getting into that later. Yeah, yeah. So to let you know about some of the changes that we're going to have this season, one big one is that rather than having one long episode, we're now going to be cutting the features up so that we have lots of different short recordings so you can pick and choose which parts of the podcast you listen to. One other big change, sadly, Kira Tiernan is no longer presenting with us, but we are enjoined instead by Kira Daly. Kira, welcome to the team. Thank you, Dara. I'm very excited to be joining yourself and Anna as part of the Climate Alarm Clock team. It's great to have you, Kira. We're sorry to lose our other Kira, but glad we replaced her with a new Kira. Yeah, Thank we're Kira. we're Looking we're working our way through all the Kiras. Big shoes to fill. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And I've got small feet, so I'll have to bring some sort of cushion or something to <laughs> take up some of the time, some um, of the room. <laughs> Great, great, good, good to know. Thanks for that, Kira. Um, so from so we're we're easing ourselves in gently this week. So from next week, we're going to have our big mix of features uh, back. We'll have Cara Carney back with our Book of Leaves collaboration. We're starting a new collaboration with Birdwatch Ireland. We're doing a culture feature with Kaylee Crossan from GreenNews.ie, and we'll have a big uh, food waste campaign that we're starting in a few weeks' time. But for this week, we're being nice to ourselves and we're just do, going to do the news roundup. You've got a very strange idea of what being nice to yourself is, Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're going to cheer ourselves up by looking at what's in the news yeah, this week. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of big stories this week, obviously. Um, Ukraine and the war in Ukraine being the massive one that we've all been consumed by. Um, what's going on there and the, the horror of it all. Um, it's also having an impact closer to home in terms of cost of living and inflation, which was already going up before the war in Ukraine, but we're seeing inflation at rates that we haven't seen for probably 20, 30 years now, um, anywhere between 6 and 8% annual inflation. So that's obviously having a big impact. Then this week, it was also World Meteorological Day this week, and we had the head of the United Nations coming out saying we need an early alarm warning system for the whole planet for weather events. So that was kind of not entirely reassuring. But so those are just some of the big stories that have been going on this week. Um, and we're going to focus in, I think, on a couple of different stories, but just that's the context that we're all living in at the moment. So I actually saw in the news this week that there was some really kind of unnerving um, events taking place in the in the uh, both of the Earth's poles. I saw that there was really extreme temperatures taking uh, kind of happening in the Antarctic and the Arctic. Um, so maybe you could tell me a little bit more about that because I... I definitely got a bit of a shock hearing this. Yeah, so as you said, there was extreme, extremely warm weather, uh, relatively speaking, in both the Arctic and the Antarctic. Um, parts of Antarctica were up to 50 degrees Celsius, warmer than normal. 
and parts of the Arctic were 30 degrees warmer than normal. So um, in Antarctica, it was still around minus 17 degrees there, but usually it's it's about minus 67 at at this time. Um, so yeah, just extreme, extreme uh, jumps in temperatures there. And so what are, what exactly is causing these jump in temperatures? So one of one of the issues with with climate change and climate science and climate communication is that it's hard to say that climate change is definitely causing a specific event. But what climate change does is basically we have far more energy in the earth system. We have far more heat in the earth system and so it's far more likely that we're going to get these extreme um events oh yeah and what i mean okay so you're saying that there's these extreme weather events but you're also saying that they're still below minus and so they're obviously still frozen so what actually is the harm that can come from this the thing for me that it gets me thinking about is how quickly these changes are are happening so i think it was quite a surprise that there was this jump in temperature and we're seeing more of these. Like we saw, we saw really, really hot weather, a heat dome in Canada um, last summer. And so one of one of one of the issues is that these extremes are becoming more common. And how do we cope with them? How would we cope in Ireland if we saw if we saw that? How would we cope in Ireland? I mean, because it's not here. How how does it affect us? Well, the question is, we don't know, Kira. Um, one of the things that scares me when I think about the Arctic is the role of the Gulf Stream. Um, we're very lucky in Ireland with our climate. We, uh, we we like to complain about it, but we're actually, we've got a mild temperate climate with that typically hasn't had a lot of extremes. And if you've ever flown to New York or anywhere in North America in winter and you look down and you'll see like the frozen wastes of Newfoundland and Labrador and we're at the same latitude as Newfoundland. So that could be our climate. We could have five to six months of extreme cold every year if we didn't have the Gulf Stream keeping us mild and warm. And the problem with what's happening in the Arctic is that it is scientists are worried that it's already starting to see an effect on the Gulf Stream. And if that changes, and that's just how water circulates around the oceans, if that changes that could have a dramatic effect on Ireland's climate. So the Gulf Stream is related and to the Arctic and that is, again, okay, so they're all kind of intertwined. Yeah, and you think about it like a circulation. So the, the Gulf Stream goes from the Gulf of Mexico, taking warm water up to the Arctic and then back down again. So we have the benefit of mild, warm water going past our coast and that's what keeps us having a mild climate. But with the changes that are happening in the Arctic, that will be affected and we and and scientists don't know exactly how it'll be affected or well, when. I mean, on one level, it's really <laughs> cool the way that that works. But on the other, it's also yeah. like, oh, my God, we are in trouble. It is very cool. Yeah, that's exactly what I think is that all this climate science will be so interesting if it wasn't so absolutely terrifying. And because the Earth is this amazingly... Um, <laughs> complicated sophisticated system that it's it's really amazing to learn how it works and to learn how all the different parts are connected um with the arctic obviously playing a big part in in our weather system 
that's where climate change can be scary because we don't know how these sudden changes might actually have knock-on direct impacts on us. Wow, it's crazy to think something so far away can just have such a huge impact on us here. Isn't it, though? But but it just shows you how connected everything is. Um, John Gibbons, who's one of our leading environmental journalists, he's described the Arctic um, issue as the equivalent of shutting down a gigantic air conditioning system. So the Arctic is basically the air conditioning that regulates the temperatures across the northern hemisphere. And he's in, he's in losing it, losing the ice cover in the Arctic is the equivalent of shutting off that air conditioner. And scientists don't really know what the impact of that will be. But it could be, a, you know, another scientist has said all hell would break loose in the North Atlantic. So let's hope that's Not a great wrong. forecast. No, 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 no. And Irish people don't and do well without an air conditioner either, so... <laughs> no, we don't like heat or extreme cold too much. But um, And actually, when I mentioned John Gibbons, I'd have to say he has played a blinder this week in getting this story the attention that it needs. Because um, one of the things that was striking was it wasn't covered on RTE or barely covered. It was barely, it wasn't, I actually looked through the Sunday Independent last Sunday to see if there was any mention of it at all. There wasn't. And John Gibbons has almost single-handedly gotten this story out and into the media and the Irish Examiner gave it a full page which it absolutely deserved Um, but it's another example of how our mainstream media are not necessarily picking up on these stories that are so important. And now we're moving on to our not climate story where we pick a story not related to climate change and talk about the climate angle of it. So Anna what story are we looking at this week? So, so the not climate story this week that we were going to talk about is Ukraine. Um, and we had a bit of a debate actually about whether Ukraine, the war in Ukraine is a climate story or not. And I was like, but it is a climate story. And and you guys pushed back and said, but it's not necessarily seen that way, which I think is, is, is very valid and makes it an interesting one to think about. Um, and look, obviously the main thing you think about when you think about the war in Ukraine is just the awful, horrific things that are happening there and the suffering of the people there. And I think we all would agree that we want that to be over as fast Absolutely. as possible and um, and get them some relief. Um, but I think from a climate point of view, what's really interesting is that Russia, the obviously the aggressor in this case, is a petrol state. Its wealth is based on oil and gas and selling oil and gas to mainly to Western Europe. Um, and, and that is what's given them the power to do what they're doing today. And even as sanctions are being um, imposed on Russia, Western Europe is still buying oil and gas from Russia and we're still paying them for that oil and gas. And still, you know, they're still maintaining their wealth as part of that. So, so they are a fossil fuel state and fossil fuels are a big part of this war that's going on there. Yeah. Right now. I mean, in terms of it, the discussion that we had ourselves about it being a not climate story, I came at it from the aspect or from the perspective of that. I mean, I don't have as much knowledge as yourself and Dara around um, climate change and the climate crisis. And for me, I felt that there obviously was or not even obviously, but I just had a suspicion or a feeling that there was a link between the climate crisis and, and what was happening in the Ukraine. But I just wasn't finding the information that described what those links were um, and only 
you know, that I, I kind of have a little bit of knowledge already of looking at how stories pertain to, to the climate crisis, but maybe are not necessarily reported in that on, on that framework, that I was able to kind of come and ask you guys and look at it from, you know, go and actually search for the information. But if you don't have that inform, if you don't have that knowledge to hand, you're just reading this as a solidly, you know, a story just about uh, uh, the, what what the event is. You're not looking at it from, you know, what are the long-term effects of this going to be? Um, and to me, that's kind of scary because people need that information in order to kind of be able to to question and ask. If you don't know, if you don't know the question to ask, you're never going to be able to ask it. In a very, I hope that makes sense. But It does, yeah. And I think what you're really touching on yeah. is a problem in general with reporting climate change because climate stories can be quite slow moving and and the news prefers the sort of rapid stories and we see that a lot even with with stories that would go viral in relation to ukraine of people sharing videos on twitter and stuff but if you take a step back you're seeing first of all the causes of the war with with funding coming from fossil fuel as anna mentioned being a huge part of why putin is able to do what he does and then the second thing is is the consequences and how we react. And so it does feel like we're at a bit of a turning point. Do we now look for alternative fuel sources, uh, alternative people to supply us with fossil fuels, or do we use this as an opportunity to increase the speed of our transition away from fossil fuel consumption? And lots of people have been coming out discussing this. So the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, warned that um, searching for alternative fossil fuel supplies is mutually assured destruction. Um, That he said that we're addicted to fossil fuels and um, we need to make sure that our response to this war doesn't actually keep us on that path that we need to move away from it and similarly um mary robinson was on the late late show saying the same thing saying that we need to she said to never waste a crisis and we need to use this opportunity now to spend as much money as it takes to get us off fossil fuels and get us preparing for a more climate resilient world and it's very encouraging to hear people of that caliber saying those things but I think the what we have to watch out for is the easy answer for governments is to source you know LNG from North America or to source more oil from Saudi Arabia and and we have to be very careful I think that, that we 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 do use this opportunity we're at kind of a turning point I think where we have that opportunity to change how we live um, in positive ways as well yeah essentially I mean what it sounds like to me is by taking the, you know, using just sourcing our oil from Saudi Arabia as a solution. I mean, it's just moving the problem elsewhere. There's also issues there that we're facing and it's not really addressing it in the long term. It's just uh, how are we going to yeah. save our pocket for these next few weeks, these next few months? But as a long term solution, we, yeah, what are we actually going and, to do? And there are fundamental changes we will all have to make in our lifestyles. And but we aren't necessarily ready to hear that or take that on board yet. So you have people who are genuinely people who are struggling with, say, the cost of petrol and diesel and so on um, and the cost of living generally. But yes, when Eamon Ryan, you know, comes out and says, drive a bit slower, that'll help you save money on petrol. 
he gets absolutely slammed for saying that and nobody wants to hear that. Or they don't want to hear it from him, I'd say. Um, <laughs> I think it's the sentence. <laughs> Which is under- understandable. Yeah, I mean, maybe. I scoffed yeah. when I heard it too. Um, but again, it's that thing of when you explained it to me, why that was actually a valid uh, suggestion, then it makes more sense to me. But it's the same thing with the way the cl- with the war in the Ukraine is being communicated to us and the links between that and the climate crisis are not until you actually have that put forward to you in an obvious way. You don't make that connection and then you just take it like this is when you're in your own life, day to day, busy life, you just think that is so inconvenient, that is so stupid and you just move on because you don't have the connection made and that's why I think this is a not climate story because that connection isn't being made for us and so therefore we're not looking to alternative solutions. We're just thinking, well, how am I going to decrease you know, the power, the price of my petrol, who are we going to get it from? That's because you don't have the next part of the story to say, I actually just don't even want this anymore. Yeah, and I think that's... Yeah, uh, that's such a great yeah, point. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a great point. And I think that's what we're really lacking in our response to climate action in general is that overarching sense, that overarching purpose, that overarching goal of where we're going and why we're going there. And the fact that we're kind of lacking that political leadership and that the long term that the sort of long term strategies for really decarbonizing aren't there it makes it quite unpalatable for people to hear oh you need to drive slower um and it's about it's about finding that balance between the short term and the long term goals but i think it really is about having a vision um and a purpose that everyone can can get behind um hopefully Maybe in the short term, people will be reducing their fossil fuel consumption to sort of disarm Putin, and then in the long term, that we that we're that we're making this transition to to give us the best chance that we can against climate change. And also that the government provide provisions, make provisions in order for us to do that. Because I'm in that position right now. I want to get rid of my car. I want to do all of these things. But I live in the countryside. It's not feasible for me to get rid of my car. Um, There's so many changes that I would love to make. And a lot of it comes down to me being able to afford it, that I'm not actually able to afford it. So I would love to see that, you know, from both sides. And that is what it takes. I mean, we have to, the you know, citizens have to take those actions. But the government also needs to, to like, enable us to do that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And like, so you see things like, for example, the retrofitting strategy, I think it's very positive that there are grants for people to do retrofitting, that that'll make a big difference. Um, but there's real issues around fuel poverty and the cost of living and transport options that have to be addressed as well. And you can't do that as an individual. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so to give credit where credit is due in terms of sort of long-term climate action, one positive development that we have seen is that this week Eamon Ryan announced plans to develop offshore wind in Ireland. Woo. So what does that actually mean? Because I have no idea. Well, there have been plans for offshore wind for a while um, and we have a target by 2030 of having like five gigawatts of offshore wind. So we're a bit slow in actually launching this. And, and what, they, what they've announced is a call for applications to develop offshore wind farms. And the hope is that the first ones will be up and producing electricity by 2026. Okay, so these wind farms are going to be a replacement essentially for our... You know, there'll be a, a, a sustainable option for our electricity. Is that right? 
Yeah, so hopefully, yeah. yeah so absolutely. hopefully they will be a replacement. The danger with these kind of projects is that actually they just add to our supply and we continue to increase consumption. So hopefully announced alongside this will be when they come online that we will be shutting down. Um, okay. That we'll be shutting down fossil fuel fossil electricity fuels. generation plants. Yeah. And what is this rollout actually going to look like for us? How soon? How is it going to happen? I think all going well. They're hoping that the first uh, offshore wind farm will be in the sea by 2026. Um, and that this is they're fast tracking it so they're waiting for the MARA to be fully set up uh, what do you know what that stands for Anna the maritime uh, mari- marine maritime Anna oh mar- maritime mar- <laughs> maritime area regulation authority yeah, I'm pretty so, sure. Sound like a fun yeah. gang. So, but why? But the uh, yeah, <laughs> great bunch of lads. But we have authorities for everything, you know. So that's uh, I'm not sure sure that actually speeds. While up, while that's know. been set up, I think the Department for the Environment are are processing the first round of applications. Um, so, so yeah, with a view. Okay, so this is a government-led program. Government-led program to find uh, wind developers to set up the wind farms. Yeah, developers. <laughs> Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, developers. <laughs> Who's bringing these guys? Yes. Haven't we learned? Don't invite these guys to the party again. <laughs> so who are these developers? Well, most of our wind industry is led by developers, and they tend they're companies who specialize in developing wind farms, and they do it with funding from a lot of the time large investment funds because. Any infrastructure like this is a big investment yeah. up front. And so the government, <clears throat> by letting it out to private developers, it means the government doesn't have to pay the upfront infrastructure development. So um, so that's why it's a private model, which there are other models, as I know Dara is fond well, of. Well, yeah, I mean, there are, it is, it is, you know, that like we were saying about not to, not to waste a crisis when it comes to Ukraine. I mean, maybe not with the offshore wind, but with moving to renewable energy, there will be chances to move to more kind of democratic electricity generation models like like community-owned wind farms, community-owned solar farms and that. But um, So when you say democratically or like community-owned, that's as in me and my community here, like me and the parish council are all going to own yeah, that's a, that's, yeah, that's exactly oh, okay. that's exactly it. So yeah. there, are, there are some examples of that. The first one being um, the... The first one being in Tipperary, um, and you can. Th- These are already a thing. Yeah, yeah. So there's a few of them. Amazing. Um, it's. Are they supported by the government or is it volunteer led? Uh, there are some government supports, but it's not as easy to get this kind of thing set up as as it could be. Huh. Yeah. And, and so that's part of the problem with wind energy. Part of the objections to it, like if you take Donegal for example, which has the most wind energy installed in the country. People don't like it. They don't want any more of it because they are not seeing any benefits from it in the community or very, very few. Um, so so if the community owns it and is benefiting from it, it becomes a much easier sell yeah. and, and it becomes more likely to be supported. By so when people. you say they're not seeing any benefits, what what do you mean by that? So if you're sitting in on a hill in Donegal and you've got wind turbines next to you, unless you own the land, the wind turbines are on. If you own the land, you get you get benefits, you get payments. If you don't own the land, you don't see 
all you see is wind turbines. You don't see how that. So the energy you. is, say, for instance, being generated in their backyard, but sent somewhere else. Exactly. So that's yeah. Ah. yeah so, it's being connected so, to the yeah, grid. So that's the way yeah. a community scheme works: is that the people in the community get some of the electricity or get cheaper electricity and and then yeah. they are able to sell the excess on so you for example could, could log on to communitypower.ie and start buying your electricity from this farm in tipperary well i had a very unpleasant yeah. bill this week so maybe i will <laughs> yeah there you go there you go all right so i think we're going to leave it there for this week before we go let's do a quick round and see what people what climate action people are going to take this week kira what are you going to do so for me i will both by choice and by uh force of what's going on in the world be looking at how i can reduce my energy consumption so looking at how i can leave the car at home more maybe get the electricity ticking a little bit less and um look at reducing now that we've got the warmer weather coming back Look at reducing the use of our of our oil in the house. Great stuff. And I'm going to be a very smug solar person and looking at my solar energy app to see that I'm generating electricity through the sun. And now that there's a bit of sunshine, it's great to see it um, taking right, up. Show off. So I'm just going to be looking at my app for the week. <laughs> yeah. Great. And I'm going to be uh, working on our food waste challenge that we'll be starting in a few weeks time so food waste is a big big issue easy way for people to reduce their emissions and has become more relevant in light of the food supply uh, crisis we'll be seeing as a result of what's going on in ukraine so that's where i'll be directing my energies this week if you want to find out more about that challenge and about what we're doing in general, don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at The Climate Alarm and on Facebook and Instagram at The Climate Alarm Clock. And of course, if you enjoy listening to us natural way, it would be absolutely brilliant if you could make sure to like or subscribe to this podcast. It'll just help us get in the ears of more and more people. And we would also just love a bit of a kind word. Thank you. Great stuff. So until next week, when we'll be back with all our usual mix of features and explainers, we will say goodbye. Thanks, Dara. Thank bye. you. Bye, bye. Bye, 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 bye. bye. <laughs>